Chapter 10 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 10. The Early 19th Century. Neptune. At the end of the 18th century, regular systematic observations were taken and published in their original form only at Greenwich. Lalande's Histoire Celeste contained thousands of observations of small stars mostly made at the observatory of the École Militaire, but most continental observations appeared only in the various national ephemerides, and occasionally in the transactions of learned societies. But in the year 1800, a new epoch began with the commencement of Zach's Monatlihon correspondence, destined to make known regularly all that was being done in the astronomical world. Its publication, like most continental scientific work, was interrupted in 1813, but it had successors, one of which, the Astronomische Nachrichten, founded by Schumacher in 1821, still holds the leading place as an international channel for the communication of discoveries and observations. This new development came none too soon, for on the first day of the 19th century, Piazzi at Palermo, a careful astronomer who took the invaluable precaution of repeating all his observations after a comparatively short interval, discovered a star-like object in apparent motion, which proved to be a small planet with an orbit between those of Mars and Jupiter. This he named Ceres, and Gauss's new Theoria Motus gave its orbit with such accuracy that it was easily found again after having passed through a large part of its orbit in which it was invisible owing to the proximity of the sun. The Germans had long professed to expect a planet at a distance from the sun, intermediate between those of Mars and Jupiter, to fill a gap in the empirical law of Bode or Titius, connecting the distance of successive planets from the sun, a law obeyed approximately by all the then known planets, including Uranus. The minor planets or asteroids, of which this was the first, now number some 600, but the rate of discovery was at first slow. The second, Pallas, was discovered by Olbers in 1802, and from the circumstances that the major axis of its orbit was nearly equal to that of Ceres, and that their orbits were near each other at the intersection of the orbital plane, sprung the hypothesis that they were fragments of a large planet, and that other portions might be found with orbits passing near the same points of intersection. Every month he examined a certain portion of the heavens round one of these points, and was at last rewarded in 1807 by the discovery of Vesta, but meanwhile in 1804 Harding had discovered Juno near the other point of intersection. More than thirty-eight years elapsed after the discovery of Vesta, before Hinke added a fifth, Astraea, and by that time Piazzi, Harding, and Olbers were dead. In 1847, three more were discovered, Hebe by Hinke, and Iris and Flora by Hind, afterwards superintendent of the Nautical Almanac, and since then the number has gone on increasing, at first steadily, but since the application of photography to the search, by leaps and bounds. The problem of finding suitable names has become one of some difficulty, in fact one is inclined to think, looking at some of the names that have been assigned, that the task has proved impossible, but we must return to this development later, 
merely noting that in the middle of the 19th century, the number of asteroids known was 13. The crowning glory in planetary discovery, however, was the prediction and finding of Neptune. John Couch Adams, in 1841, while working for his tripos at Cambridge, came across some unexplained anomalies in the motion of Uranus. Others had considered the problem thus presented, among them Bessel, whose plans for investigation were cut short by death. Adams made a note of the problem, to be tackled after his tripos, and as soon as he had gained the distinction of senior wrangler in 1843, he returned to the consideration of the anomalous inequalities of Uranus, with the avowed intention of testing the possibility of their being caused by a planet still more remote. All the known observations of Uranus, dating back to the time of Flamsteed, had already been compared by Bouvard, who could not find elements that would satisfy all the observations. And when he obtained approximate success with the more recent observations by rejecting the old ones, it was found in the course of a few years that the predicted places were gradually receding from the truth again. While Adams was applying to Airy, the astronomer royal, for Greenwich observations of Uranus, Arago, the director of the Paris Observatory, was urging Leverrier to undertake the same problem. In the autumn of 1845, Adams arrived at an approximate solution of the inverse problem in perturbations to which he had devoted his attention, and finding it represented the anomalies in longitude fairly well, sent it to Airy, who, before paying much attention to it, as was only natural from the diffident way in which Adams presented his result, desired to know whether the errors of the radius vector would be equally represented by the suggested solution. Adams, by failing to reply for some months, threw away the advantage of having reached his result so early, for in the meantime, Le Verrier had also arrived at a hypothetical orbit for the disturbing planet. It thus happened that Airy had both sets of elements before him, and asked Le Verrier the same question regarding the radius vector. Le Verrier at once assured him that his elements were bound to satisfy all the discordances, and was so confident of his success that he asked Dr. Gallet of Berlin to look for the planet in a definite assigned place, Gallet being provided with a new set of star maps constructed to facilitate the recognition of minor planets, and on the first evening of the search the planet was found very near Le Verrier's predicted place. Professor Challey at Cambridge, meanwhile, had been trying, without much hope of success, to locate the planet from Adams's predicted place, and he had actually succeeded in observing it more than once, but being unprovided with the star maps, continued his observations over a larger tract of sky before reducing the earlier ones for comparison. Thus it was that the applause of the world was first showered on Le Verrier alone, and Adams's equal claims only obtained later recognition. Too much has been written on the vexed question of the responsibility for the delay in working from Adams's results, but it is generally conceded that he himself was at least as much to blame as anybody. It was soon found on constructing an ephemeris that, except Lalande, no one was likely to have observed the planet before, and a diligent search resulted in the discovery of two observations in 1795, which were of great value in computing the orbit of the new planet, which, although at first called Le Verrier, soon became generally known as Neptune. 
Into the further discussion as to whether the planet discovered was really the planet indicated by the theory of Le Verrier, inasmuch as its elements differed considerably from the predicted ones, we need not enter. It is sufficient that the discovery was predicted and the inverse problem in perturbations proved approximately soluble. All honor, therefore, to the genius of the two men who attacked and solved it. Neptune's mean distance was a severe blow to the empirical law of Bode, above referred to, being far too small to satisfy it. Uranus had fitted very badly. Neptune refused to fit at all. Meanwhile, an Englishman, William Lassell, had made for himself a reflecting telescope, ingeniously arranged with an equatorial mounting, and of such good definition that he discovered that Neptune had a satellite, observations of which enabled the planet's mass to be calculated. He turned his attention to Saturn, whose known satellites already numbered seven, one discovered by Alhans, four by Cassini, and two by William Herschel, and in 1848 found an eighth satellite, also discovered at the same time in America by W.C. Bond of Harvard, who, two years later, discovered what is known as the crepe ring, a dusky ring within the inner portion of Saturn's bright ring. It was not until 1851 that Lassell certainly detected the two inner moons of Uranus, and it is probable that these were not seen by Herschel and that his four doubtful ones have no real existence. The mention of Lassell's equatorials, with which he did such good work, both near Liverpool and in Malta, brings us to other instrumental improvements of the period. England had long held a high place for accurate instruments. Abraham Sharp, who divided Flamsteed's great quadrant, Graham, with whose instruments Bradley made most of his observations, and Bird had brought the art of graduating quadrants to a high degree of accuracy. In 1809, Edward, one of the brothers Troton, devised a plan for graduating complete circles, and three years later the first mural circle was set up at Greenwich. A reversible circle was already known, for Piazzi had one at Palermo in the form of an altazimuth, and there was a small one at Greenwich. With these, the zenith distance of a star on the meridian was found by quickly reversing the instrument about the vertical axis and taking two observations as near the meridian as possible, determining the error of the vertical axis by a plumb line. The new mural circle, not being reversible, could not be used in the same way, but with it polar distances could be measured, the polar setting being found from observations of stars above and below pole. Pond, the astronomer royal at the time, in succession to Maskelin, introduced about 1821 the method of taking observations of the same star at the same meridian passage in two parts, one direct and the other by reflection at a trough of mercury, which enabled the zenith distance to be determined. The next step was to combine the two meridian instruments, the transit and the mural circle, so as to enable the same object to be observed in both right ascension and polar distance or zenith distance by the same observer at the same time. Smaller instruments of this kind were gradually being introduced, and in 1850 the Greenwich transit circle was set up, which is still in constant use. Meanwhile, clockwork motion for equatorials was also introduced which enabled a celestial object to be followed easily, the motion of the clock counteracting the effect of the Earth's rotation and keeping the telescope pointed in the same direction in space. 
Improvements in the optical portion of telescopes were also keeping pace, the apertures increasing to 9, then 11, and 12 inches, this advance having been rendered possible by the invention by Dalland in 1758 of the achromatic lens, the principle of which was by the combination of two lenses of different kinds of glass and of different dispersive power to counteract approximately the effect of the spreading of color fringes due to the fact that the focus of a single lens is not the same for all colors, the dispersion of the convex lens being nearly neutralized by the opposite effect produced by a concave lens of such different glass, however, that the combined effect was still that of a convex lens, in order not to lose the magnifying power. The great advance thus rendered possible was very largely made by Fraunhofer of Munich, whose first great success, a fine objective of nine and a half inches in diameter and fourteen feet focal length, was long known as the great Dorpat refractor. He also constructed, for Königsberg Observatory, the first effective heliometer. The principal feature of this celebrated instrument is a divided object glass, the two halves of which can give separate images, the amount of the motion given to the moving portion being strictly measurable by the screw which moves it, so that the diameter of a celestial disk or the angular distance between two celestial objects can be found by separating the images until one pair of opposite parts coincides. One of the greatest advances in exact astronomy, however, was the gradual adoption of the principle of determining and correcting residual instrumental errors, instead of trying to reduce them to zero by continual adjustment of the instrument. But while the new astronomical periodicals above referred to were doing yeoman service, especially in the matter of the speedy dissemination of news of discoveries, they were by no means the only signs of growing activity. In 1814, Bessel commenced the regular publication of the Königsberg observations, and Struve those of Dorpat, followed in 1820 by the first volume of Vienna observations. The same period saw Piazzi's great catalogue of stars, and the beginning of Argelander's work at Abo. The United Kingdom also was not content with steadily increasing the staff and efficiency of Greenwich Observatory. The Dublin Observatory under Brinkley became active, though not attempting systematic publication. In 1823-24, the Cambridge Observatory was erected, and regular publication commenced with the advent of Airy in 1828, though he is far better known by his long tenure of the post of Astronomer Royal, in which he succeeded Pond in 1835. Soon afterwards, regular publication was commenced under Dr. Robinson at Armagh. In order to supplement the fundamental work of Greenwich by a southern observatory, the British government founded one at the Cape of Good Hope, which was completed and equipped in 1829. Parramatta Observatory in New South Wales was founded and equipped by the governor, Sir Thomas Brisbane, in 1822. On the continent of Europe also, observations were already growing numerous, and soon afterwards the impetus given by some early successes at Cincinnati, Harvard College, and elsewhere in the United States inaugurated a period of activity there which has been ever since increasingly maintained, except during the period of the Civil War. In 1820, moreover, was founded the Royal Astronomical Society, first known as the Astronomical Society of London, whose monthly notices and memoirs are still a leading feature in astronomical publications. End of chapter 10. Recording by Maria James, The Glorious Midwest USA.